I once heard a doctor at a presentation speak very candidly about the brain, which I really appreciated. He basically said that we have advanced light years in what we know about the brain, the brain functioning and how it works in the last 20, 30 years. With all that advancement, which has been wonderful, we still know nothing about the brain. Not literally nothing. There's just still so much more about the brain that we don't understand and we can't fully appreciate because it's so complex. It's so amazingly wonderful and complex that we still know very little in comparison. We still know very little in the big scheme of things. Now that all being said, what are we gonna talk about today? We're gonna talk about the brain and we're gonna talk about the delicacy of the brain. We're gonna talk about the delicate nature of the brain and what happens when that's impacted, whether it's something internal, physical, medical, or whether it's something external that causes some sort of damage to the brain. There's so many variations of what kind of impact that has depending on what occurs to the brain. There's a lot that we are not aware of, meaning us, the lay people, are not aware of, of how it could actually impact a person that you might not notice at first. And you might not know at all that there is some sort of brain injury or damage to the brain. And to take that further, there's a lot of impact on everyone around the person who is struggling with whatever is going on with their brain. So going through that experience of having some sort of impact on the brain, whether it affects their ability to move or their personality or their mood, etc., etc., we're going to try to give a picture, a full picture of what that experience is like. And I'm fortunate to have a co-host who's very experienced in this area, who knows that world very well, who works with people and families who have gone through that experience. So I hope you appreciate this. This is Mental Filter. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Mental Filter, where we get to talk to lots of interesting people about interesting things all through the lens of mental health. Thank you for being here. As always, if you want to support us, you want to get more episodes like this, please review, rate, comment, share all that good stuff on this episode and the show in general. So as you heard in the introduction, today's episode is all about the brain. And we can spend three weeks talking about the brain and we wouldn't even scratch the surface. I'm looking forward to this episode where I get to co-host with a good friend of mine, a colleague who knows a lot more about these experiences than I do. We get to learn about what happens inside our heads and what happens when there's trauma to our heads and inside our heads and what that whole experience is like, both for the person who experienced that and then all the people around them. So without further ado, I will allow my co-host to introduce himself and we'll get going. Thank you so much. My name is Elhanan Schwartz. I am a mental health counselor licensed in New York and New Jersey. I spend most of my time working for a nonprofit organization called BINA that helps people who've had a traumatic brain injury, a TBI or a stroke, a brain cancer, any type of injury to the brain. I work with brain injury survivors and I do a lot of work with the families 
spouses, parents, children, uh, siblings of brain injury survivors. I also maintain a uh, private practice, both in New York and New Jersey, and I keep myself busy with teaching and doing other things like that and podcasts like this one. I'm really happy to be able to join you today to talk a little bit about the brain. Thanks for being here. And Elhanan is a talented guy, a man of many hats, and so I'm fortunate to, to have him here. In case you're wondering, for any of the listeners who do not have any sort of Middle Eastern background, his name is Elhanan, and there is no equivalent of the Ch in the English language, as far as I am aware. That is his name, Elhanan Schwartz. And yeah, there's a lot of directions we can come at this when learning and talking about the brain and what happens when there's an injury to it. Whenever I hear the word brain, we were talking about this before, I immediately go to pinky in the brain because that's my childhood. I'm not sure if I'm more of a pinky or more of the brain, but we won't go there. So let's start with some understanding of, I imagine that there is the typical person, the average person doesn't necessarily think about this or think about the experiences until it happens to them, until there is some sort of trauma to them or to someone in their family. So unless you're in it, I'm guessing that a lot of people just don't know much about it. What would you say are just some of the misnomers or myths about when someone says traumatic brain injury, you know, maybe people automatically go to someone who's older that has a stroke or this crazy story where someone was in a car accident and there's probably more things that happen that fall under the category of some sort of trauma to the brain than the average person thinks. So how would you educate in the two-minute education of what the average person is not aware of when it comes to this category of TBI? A great question. So misnomers abound. There's plenty of misnomers about brain injury in general, and it's part of why we try and get out there and, and do educational podcasts or things like that to better educate the population. But I think specifically to what you're asking, the most common cause of brain injury, TBI, traumatic brain injury, which is an injury that happens to the brain as a result of an impact to the brain, the most common cause, what would you guess that would be? I would guess sports. Falls, officially. When someone did that to me, I guessed um, car accidents, but it's falls. And I'm assuming that's, we have elderly people maybe that are injuring themselves. Maybe that increases the, the frequency there. So that's traumatic brain injury, falls, car accidents, increased awareness, which probably could do, you could, we could do our own podcast on concussion, which is a mild traumatic brain injury because of injury to the brain. There's also some things like you mentioned, strokes, people hear strokes, they generally think um, someone who's elderly. We have, I'm working with cases of pediatric stroke, believe it or not. Sometimes people are born with something called an, an AVM, arterial venous malformation, which is angle of arteries, uh, veins in the brain that sometimes can leak or rupture or bleed. That can sometimes happen in younger people as well. Another thing that's interesting that people don't necessarily think of as a brain injury is what's called an anoxic brain injury. An anoxic brain injury happens or a hypoxic anoxic brain injury when there's a lack of or a complete cutoff of oxygen to the brain. So for example, if someone were to have a cardiac arrest where their heart stopped beating as a result of, let's say, a heart attack or something else, that's not technically what people would think of as being a brain injury, but there's often brain damage. If someone's down for a long time, then they might have damage to their brain as a result of the lack of oxygen going to their brain. And that suffocation and carbon monoxide poisoning and things like that are all kind of examples of a brain injury where you wouldn't necessarily think of it as a brain injury, 
but possibly causes injury to the brain. All those things, when you hear about, you take a CPR course and they're like, brain cells start dying after four minutes. That's why an injury, if the heart stops beating, the brain can wind up, people can wind up with anoxic injury, which is, is a pretty serious and often very devastating type of injury to the brain. Wow. Okay. That's a lot of information that I didn't know about. <laughs> so thinking about this, but before we started, there, there are so many layers to this. So someone who unfortunately has one of these experiences, one of these injuries, traumas. So trying to think of it through the lens of mental health. So you have the medical piece, right? So you have the actual damage to the brain and how that affects them medically or their physical movements or just their health. Then you have, which is a question we're going to get to is depending on where the injury is in the brain, how does it affect different functions? How does it affect their personality? I'm not going to remember the details, but I remember in some course I took in college about one of the first cases where a gentleman was impaled by a spear, a spike or something, and then his personality like completely changed overnight. Phineas Gage. What year was that? I don't remember the year. He was a railroad worker and had this, they used to use like kind of these explosives to put these camping rods that went through his head. And that was officially the first time when people realized that the brain had something to do with personality. Yeah. Classic intro to psych type of case study. Exactly. And so there's that layer of how it affects the person depending on where the injury is. And which is very relevant for me is it's like a double whammy. Not only did you have a medical emergency crisis and dealing with that, but there's a trauma that you went through that. So even if medically, physically, you recover, and maybe we'll get to the concept of plasticity in the brain, but even if I recover from all that, I would say it's a medical trauma. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would agree with that. But I would say that Oftentimes, what we're dealing with from a psychological standpoint, that's not related to the actual injury to the brain. What's interesting about most brain injuries is that people usually don't remember them. A traumatic brain injury, what often happens is that when we have our memories in our brain, there's kind of a process by which the short-term memories get stored and become long-term memories. And when the brain kind of gets uh, hit and it shuts down like a computer going offline, and it has to reboot. So the memories that were in the brain kind of get erased before they have a chance to get stored in long-term memory. So usually what will happen is you speak to someone who's in a car accident, they don't remember the accident, and they will often not remember any of the three hours before the accident, because those memories have, I always, when I explain it to younger kids, but I think it works for everybody, it's for the person carrying the files from the desk to the filing cabinet to store them kind of got knocked over and all those files went flying in every which way. And so they never wound up getting stored. So that's interesting about a traumatic brain injury in particular. I think with stroke, you have not quite the same. And then what will happen often is if someone has a severe brain injury, they'll be in a coma for a certain period of time. I find that oftentimes people don't remember, they'll tell me afterwards, they don't remember the injury. They don't remember the hospital. They don't remember the rehab. Their first kind of memories are months, depending on the timeline, but really they don't remember so much of the medical trauma. I often think that it's much harder on the families who have to go through that than the person themselves. Where you do see a, a big psychological impact of brain injury is oftentimes after brain injury, the person has some sort of disability, whether it's physical or cognitive, 
disability that they're now adjusting to and getting used to life again, let's say might have trouble walking or trouble seeing, can't drive, whatever it may be, those adjustments, the new normal, I'm treating someone who had a brain injury, it's that that they're really focused on. Not so much the trauma of going through the medical thing, whereas let's say someone who had cancer went through this whole horrible experience with chemo and whatnot. With a brain injury, they're not so much focused on that as much as dealing with the now, the fact that their lives are so changed compared to what it was before. That's a really good point. So if I'm understanding this correctly, the actual trauma of going through that experience perhaps is more traumatic for the people around them. And then the new life and the the new reality, and maybe they have to relearn how to talk, how to walk, how to eat and all that stuff. That is maybe more traumatic than the injury itself. And I would maybe say that there's a level of grief and loss maybe that goes into it. You have to grieve that I don't have these capabilities right now, which is probably very overwhelming. I imagine that's part of your work. Absolutely. Yeah, there definitely is a, it's a loss. It's a loss for the person, loss for those around them. And very difficult to adjust to, changes the dynamics in a marriage, changes the dynamics within the family. We have these structures in place within our relationships and our families. Someone gets so significantly impacted in one way or another, and that changes that. A person can grieve their past life. Yeah, very, very much. I I think that's what I find. Not to say that there isn't any medical trauma, but I just found in the people that I work with, it's usually more about that. The family members might be more having gone through that, having been in the hospital for four or five months, ICUs for such a long time. They might be really more experiencing that trauma, or they may have seen the accident, or they have something like that. And I want to get back to that a little bit later about the family, because it's good that an organization like yours exists, because I can see it easily being overlooked because the focus is obviously the patient. And oh my God, this patient is in the hospital. This patient is, I don't know, intubated and coma and all that stuff. And like, oh, they have to get better. And it's easy to overlook what everyone else is going through. So I want to get back to that soon. Now, I thought what you said about the memories, which I think is pretty interesting, and maybe a neurologist might have even more insight. I'm sure you work with neurologists. But not having that memory, so I would be really curious, does that mean that memory is nowhere in their brain, it's gone, or is it somewhere there, yet they just can't access it? Not that you have the answer to that question. Oh, it's, it's, it's certainly studied and debated, and I think there were a lot of studies on PTSD, meaning could someone have PTSD from an experience that they technically don't remember? And if they can, how could you do it? I think there was a lot of, there were some papers written about it dealing, you know, with combat veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan who don't remember the impact. I believe in general, there is an increased incidence of PTSD when there is injury to the brain in general. So if someone has a concussion, someone went over an IED or whatever, and they have a concussion because of that, there seems to be increased PTSD when there was some sort of injury to the brain. But I believe they think that there, there can still be because if you're into all the kind of body trauma, but you know, body keeps the score and things like that, your sympathetic nervous system was still activated. But I, I would see how there could be still a post-traumatic stress disorder, even if the person doesn't necessarily have the memory, which makes it obviously tricky to treat. And would be, I think you, know, you look at the kind of sensory types of treatments for trauma would probably be helpful in such a case. It is interesting. If someone goes through an experience, but they're not even conscious, but it's happening around them. For those that don't know already, trauma is interesting because it's so subjective. 
it's a subjective experience. You can have 10 people all go through a car accident, a motor vehicle accident, and you can have six of them that walk away and they just go about their lives. And you can have four of them that completely are debilitated by it and they can't stop thinking about it and they have all trauma symptoms. An experience is not objectively traumatic. It's experiential. It depends on the person. Now, why does person A have traumatic symptoms and a reaction to that experience that develops into PTSD and why this one? I couldn't answer that. I'm sure there's research on maybe what predisposes someone to that. Actually, you reminded me of a question where we had a it was a young boy. I don't know how, I don't remember how old he was. And the question basically came up is that to take your presentation even a step further, not only do they not remember, the experience didn't even really take place. So this young man, he wasn't delusional, but he imagined, he thought that there was someone that almost kidnapped him. Let's say, I don't remember the exact circumstances. So We don't even know that it actually happened, but in his mind, he thought that, oh my God, I almost got kidnapped. Someone almost Mm -hmm. snatched me. So I remember having this question, can someone technically be traumatized by something they think is happening, even though it's not really happening? To add one point to that is that then I remember after 9-11 that there were some studies done on children who were watching the news. Now that's etched in my brain. I'm sure it's etched in your brain too, watching the news 9-11 and seeing it playing over and over again. And for kids of a certain age, when they were watching it, they didn't understand that when they were playing the videos of the planes going in again and again, they didn't necessarily realize that it was the same thing. They thought that, oh my God, this is happening again. And this is happening again. And this is happening again. And so... Piggybacking off of that, could someone of a certain developmental age see something that's fictional? You know, let's say they watch a horror movie when they're seven and really maybe it's not advisable that they're watching this horror movie and it scares the you know what out of them. Could they be traumatized out of something that's not reality? It's more of a rhetorical question. The thing with the news is forget about kids. The emotional part of our brain may not, I believe, understand when it sees something over and over again, that it's not the same thing. When we see something with frequency, the way our brain works is that if you see something, it's happening. Not if you see something that happened already and you're seeing it again. I remember there was a Zoom call right in the beginning of the pandemic with the APA, I believe. And there was a big discussion of the news. People are sitting at home watching the news. You see a death. It's again, they're running the same story on a loop again and again. Our cognitive cortex part of our brain kind of processes, is aware that it's the same story. The midbrain, the lower parts of our brain, amygdala and areas that are in control of emotions don't necessarily get it. They're not as smart, so to speak, and they don't necessarily understand that this is the same story. So the emotional reaction, the emotional part of the brain can start getting wired to believe that this is actually happening with more frequency than it is. A warning about the way we process media nowadays in general. No question. Yeah, we made a hard left somewhere but it's fine. Plenty of my clients that I work with, we go on a news diet because it can play out in so many ways. First of all, you have to processing so much information is exhausting. And then when there's a lot of negative things happening, that adds to the exhaustion. And then I have clients who feel the need, like I need to watch everything in order to be fully informed 
or mm -hmm. if I don't watch everything, then I don't really care about this matter if I'm not really watching everything on it. And there's no question that hearing that stuff again and again could really be taxing. One final note on the memory stuff, you also reminded me of something is that I might not remember the details. You're talking about the patient who goes through a motor vehicle accident and maybe doesn't remember the accident, doesn't remember even a couple hours before because that was in the cachet of working memory and that didn't make it to the more permanent memory. There's, I know there's a term for it and I'm forgetting at the moment, but it's still in that cachet so they don't have it anymore. I can say anecdotally, I could meet somebody that I haven't seen in, I don't know, 15, 20 years. I could meet someone somewhere and I don't even know where I know them from, honestly. You got to do the whole nod and smile thing. And yeah, when they come say hello, as if I remember where I know them from. So I cannot remember their name. I cannot remember where I know them from, in what context. But I've realized this a while ago. I will somehow be able to tell if it was positive or negative, my relationship with that person. So did I like that person? Did I not like that person? I will automatically have a reaction of, oh, that person is like irritating or that person is great to be around. Not having the context for it of where do I know this person from? Your implicit memory kind of has some sort of implicit, I don't know if that's technically your implicit memory, but you have some sort of place inside you that's wired with an emotional response to that person, even though you don't have any explicit memory of who that person is or where you know them from. That's very interesting. So two-part question here. One, is there a difference at which point in a person's life they're getting the injury? So developmental age, so if someone is 7, 8, 9 versus 20, 30 versus 40, 50, if they experience a, a brain injury. And then part two of that question, is there any difference between, you differentiated between a brain injury that is medical, so like you said, like a stroke, aneurysm, things like that, versus something external, collision and impact. So a fall, a car crash, an attack, whatever it is. Uh, what are the differences as far as like the experiences between those two? Okay. So two great questions. As far as age, I would say that there definitely are some differences. The brain retains some plasticity. The brains of children are more plastic, meaning the other areas of the brain are able to develop and take over the parts of the area that might have been injured. It was always thought that for children who had a brain injury, they kind of have a better prognosis because their brains are more plastic and therefore the area that's injured, the other areas may be able to compensate for that. I think it's important for maybe the audience to know, it's not, you know, you cut your skin and new skin cells come and grow back and repair it. Neurons, for the most part, the neurons, which are the smart cells of the brain, which are the part of the brain that, you know, that makes us think, do we want to really overly simplify things? There are other types of cells in the brain that are more similar to the rest of the cells in our body, the support cells, the glial cells, etc. But neurons don't really, once people are getting older, they don't really regenerate. There's some studies now that maybe certain neurons might, so it's a little complicated, but I think it's probably still safe to say as a general rule that neurons don't grow back. So the way someone recovers from a brain injury is not by that brain growing back, it's by the neurons inside the brain forming new connections. So anyways, so the brain when it's younger is more moldable and more plastic and therefore can grow back. The downside is 
that there are some times where the kid will have an injury and that the brain is still developing. So you also have, have injured something. You might not even realize the extent of the injury till the kid gets older because there are areas that may have been affected that we that kind of it hasn't come out yet. So that's a downside. I found also on the age, people who are older, less plastic, people who are really older, like an elderly person, I've just found a lot of instances where they have a stroke sometimes, and it really just seems to take something out of their general cognitive function. And that can be an issue as well. Before you get to that second question that you're about to answer, with the developmental age, is there any truth to if someone experiences a traumatic brain injury at a certain age that in some ways they'll be a little bit stuck at that developmental stage of their life because that's when the injury occurred. So if someone is not fully neurologically developed, which is about 26, I believe, and so they have an injury at 12, maybe it just depends on where in the brain they got injured. Random example here is that you cut down a tree and you're able to see the rings, and then you're able to see there was a fire in that forest 25 years ago because you can see it on the rings. And so sometimes when someone has a trauma at a, at a specific age in their life, they're in some respects stuck in that developmental stage. Or am I totally making this all up? I never really thought of it like that. That's not really how I've perceived it or that they're stuck at that developmental level. So you sometimes in severe memory loss, sometimes people, if they have an inability to form new memories, they can be stuck on a memory place on that level. So yeah, obviously if there's injury to memory, so the ability to learn can be affected. But I think it's more, the way you're talking about it sounds almost like very global, like on their entire development. I would say that in brain injury, probably we don't look at it as like, when, when someone has a developmental disorder, for example, or is developmentally delayed, there's, it's a little more global and brain injury. There's often, what's interesting, if you read like a neuropsychological evaluation of someone with a brain injury, oftentimes you'll see there's some areas that they're average, above average, and some areas where they're much weaker. So it's hard to say that the development stops because it's like a very uneven kind of skill set where certain areas, they may be very strong in certain areas, a little weaker, certain areas average. So the idea of them kind of being stuck at a developmental stage almost sounds too clear-cut. I guess, it, yeah, it's, it's saying it back to me, it's, it's a little maybe reductionist. So maybe what I'm thinking is that in different parts of development, so if someone has an injury in a certain part of their brain, and that part of the brain is responsible for some functions, so whether it's verbal or social or memory, then maybe in that area of development that doesn't heal fully, then maybe they can be stunted. I'm happy to be incorrect on it. And I will put it out there. Anyone listening who has more information on that and can educate right. us by all means, reach out and let us know. Yeah, maybe okay. I'm just kind of stuck in the way like I, I see it or explain it or something like that. That's never, it's worth thinking about. Certainly. I often think of drug use like that. As we take another left turn, that development, child development stops when drug use begins. I've often seen that in some of the clients I work with addictions that some guy starts smoking marijuana all day when they're 12 years old. And now they're 20, but they're still 12 in, in certain developmental ways. 
there's no question that I've seen it with other traumas, other yeah. types of traumas where someone has experienced a sexual trauma, abuse, things like that at a certain age. It can be pretty clear that in some respects, they're stuck at that developmental age. Maybe it's in certain areas and certain parts, emotional regulation or social developments. Okay. So back to that second question of differences between the type of brain injury, basically the medical, the internal versus the, the external. I think there's a big difference if you understand how the injury works, what areas of the brain get injured. For example, in a stroke, particularly in an ischemic stroke, which is the most common type of stroke, I think 80% of strokes around are ischemic strokes, which are where there's a blockage in the artery in the brain. Those are often more kind of focal localized damage because basically what happens is you have a, the artery and then you have something getting stuck there, which doesn't allow blood flow past there. So the areas downstream of the blockage are the ones that are going to get affected. So for example, uh, in a common geriatric type of stroke, which is a ischemic stroke to the middle cerebral artery, it's going to hit pretty much more or less the same area. So if it's on the left side, that's why you often see speech and language being affected because that's kind of, the, those are the areas that are downstream from the blockage of blood flow. So strokes in general are usually more kind of localized and focal damage to specific parts of the brain. Whereas let's say what we talked about before an anoxic injury where the entire brain is not getting oxygen, decreased oxygen, obviously it's gonna be a much more diffuse injury. In that kind of case, areas that have, areas in the brain that are more sensitive to oxygen deprivation are going to be more severely injured. Hippocampus, memory, often an issue in anoxic injury. And then when you have traumatic brain injury, what you often see famously is what's called a coup, counter-coup injury, where basically, especially in an automobile accident or something like that, what happens is the, the brain kind of snaps back and forth. In physics, you have a, the skull and the brain. The skull is very hard. The brain is very soft. And when there's a impact, on the brain, oftentimes the skull stops before the brain. So the brain basically bangs into the skull and then brings backwards. So if someone's in a head-on collision, for example, just to make it simple, so oftentimes you're going to see injury to the frontal lobe of the brain and sometimes the occipital lobe in the back of the brain. But oftentimes in traumatic brain injury, what we deal with a lot is frontal lobe injury. So you see a lot of executive function issues, which are associated with the frontal lobe of the brain. That's kind of, so I think you're on to something in the question, yeah, that there are, it is important. I often try, I'm not a neurologist, but just when someone calls me, okay, where was the injury? Do you know where the stroke was? Because it is, it does give you some sense of what you might be looking at as an issue. Like oftentimes some of the TBI, oh, this person had a traumatic brain injury and now they feel, they sound like they don't have a filter and they get very angry very easy, have trouble regulating emotions. So did they by any chance have an injury to the frontal lobe of the brain? Oh yeah, they did. You know, so it is helpful in understanding just to get a basic sense of where the injury is. And definitely there are differences in it generally as to how different injuries impact the brain. Thank you. So now, really, probably the, the most important questions uh, of this episode is, could we try to give some insight to people listening through two lenses? The experience, which you, you gave a little taste earlier, the experience through the lens of the patient after the injury and then reacclimating, 
through the lens of what's this experience like for the people around them. And then both of them navigating this new reality. So the patient has to navigate all these sorts of new things. And then the family has to not only have the experience, but they have to navigate this new person. And the person has to navigate the new person. It's a tremendous, often, obviously, adjustment. I mean, there's different stages. It's such a long process. The recovery is so long from a brain injury. If someone has a severe type of brain injury, so you're looking at probably maybe a couple months in the hospital, a couple months in rehab, a couple months in subacute rehab, finally come home, more rehab, outpatient rehab. It's such a long process. The person is often different at many different stages. There's really a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty, I think, that really, if you had to say one word about the experience, I think, for everyone who's going through it, there's just like a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unknown, a lot of ambiguity, you know, as to, to what is ambiguity about prognosis. There's not, it's not often not, what's going to get better, how's it going to get better, what's the timeline. Someone I was meeting with this week was just telling me he has an issue with his eye as a result of a traumatic brain injury. And he said something like, like I, I wish when I went to the doctor, I go to the doctor, they say, okay, we did this. Now we're going to do this and we'll see you in another three months. There's no like timeline, there's no, and then it will be better. Like everything really is unsure. There's nothing that's certain. It's so interesting that you bring it up because I don't know if we've ever spoken about this before. I came across this like concept called ambiguous loss. Sure. And I don't think enough people know about it. I certainly didn't know about it. That I came across a book by Pauline Boss. She's an expert on ambiguous loss. And so for those listening, the, the idea of ambiguous loss is, is basically an undefined loss. It's an unresolved, there's no necessarily beginning, middle, and end to the loss. So a couple of good examples of that would be, let's say someone's dad walked out. So he's physically not here, he's alive, he's somewhere. Or another example would be someone who has a parent or spouse who's struggling with addiction. So they're physically there, but they're not necessarily fully there. Or someone has a parent who's going through dementia. So again, physically there, but not mentally there. Someone who's going through something, they're in a coma. They're not gone, but they're gone. Some of the more extreme versions of it would be, remember that plane that went missing? So that's like the perfect example of where are they? 9-11 is another good example. If they never recovered the remains of a loved one, what really happened to them? I don't really know. And maybe I will never know. So it's like the best way I can describe it is here, but not here. Or not here, but here. <laughs> and there's really no resolution to it. So I think we agree that this certainly falls under that category of this like ambiguous loss, both for the person and then for the people around them. So my husband, my wife, my child, two weeks ago, they were this person. And now they're this version of that person. And I don't know if they're going to go back to being that person. I have them, but their personality is different. And yeah, so that's what I'm talking about. Even speak more about through the lens of the family and them of what happens next and what's that experience like. So ambiguous loss, we use it a lot in dealing with brain injury. Whether it's a severe brain injury where someone is in a persistent vegetative state, so they're really not here, but they're still alive. There's no ritual 
to say goodbye. There's no funeral. There's no shiva. There's no, it's just hanging. And then in an incidence where the person does recover, but is not the same person. So the person that they were is not here, but there's a new person here. So they're dementia, certainly. I found that it's interesting just having that name. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to someone and I've introduced the concept, just the words, ambiguous loss. And they're like, oh, there's just, it's almost like a relief that like someone gave a name to this problem. Someone, maybe it's, it, it helps them feel more understood, or maybe it just finally conceptualizes what they're already feeling and they have a, a framework to now work with it. But just her introducing this concept has been, you know, so helpful for so many people. And it's not an easy thing to, to deal with. A lot of the, the treatment is not geared to finding answers, but more to be more able to live with uncertainty. The treatment for ambiguous loss, ideally, we try to resolve the ambiguity. So let's find the missing soldier or the missing passengers on the airplane or help the person recover. But at the end of the day, if that's not happening, it's a lot about learning to, to live kind of day by day and not have to know for certain that's really the muscle, the psychological muscle that kind of gets the workout and brain injury for family members uh, and for the patient themselves. You know, as far as patients changing, like you said, so they're, they're like a different person than they were. So whether it's their mobility, their functioning, their personality, their emotional regulation, I'm very curious, how much are they aware of that they've changed. So obviously, okay, their mobility, they can realize, okay, I can't do this anymore. How much are they aware of, like you said, about someone who's getting angry all the time, is irritable or is anxious? It's almost like I would imagine like ignorance is bliss if for them not to necessarily be aware because if someone's aware that I have very little control over my emotions, I'm this angry person, I used to be this happy-go-lucky person. How much are they aware of the fact that they're so different now? It depends. I think the awareness is part of it. And like you said, it's a mixed bag there because you know, sometimes people are very aware of what they're no longer able to do. And that can be very painful. Sometimes they're not aware. Generally, insight can help lead to, to compensation. When you realize there's an issue, it, it, it makes it a little easier to work with resolving the problem once you realize there's a problem. So it is a mixed bag as far as insight. But I think you see it. There, there are times when people, you know, a common thing with frontal lobe injuries that people will will feel like they, they can't filter. They have difficulty filtering something that they would normally never say and it just pops out or that their emotions escalate and they feel like they can't put the brakes on, the, on those emotions, those two common complaints. And oftentimes people will say afterwards, so sometimes there's not an awareness of that that's happening. And sometimes the goal in treatment is to increase that awareness. But sometimes the person realizes right afterwards like what, and with kids, imagine how, confusing that must be. If there's things that are going on that are different about how my brain works than they were a year ago, and, and I don't know that. You know, a kid goes back to school and suddenly he can't pay attention. He was always in a student and now he's not, and he doesn't know why, what's not working, how come he can't remember, or how come I keep blowing up like this? What's wrong with me? Am I a bad person? You know, a big part in general of dealing with brain injury, a lot of what I do is psychoeducation, is, is explaining to people and to families what's going on, what's happening. And often just that information is helpful because it can take the temperature down a little bit as far as what the stress is like when people have an idea of, of what's going on. I think it's a game changer for themselves because a lot of people get stuck in like, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Or they for sure get stuck in like shoulds. Like this shouldn't be happening, or I should be able to do this. I should be able to recover. 
you can also get into, I should have done this or I shouldn't have done this. I maybe could have prevented this. And that's my fault that it's happened or things aren't fair. But I think the psychoeducation is probably essential for them, for the people around them, because they come home and then they're no filter, they're getting angry or they go to school, like you said, and all of a sudden their behavioral issue, they're calling out in class, someone goes back to work and they were so pleasant. And then meanwhile, in meetings, they're now being so argumentative or they're saying things that they shouldn't say. So without having context, the boss is like, come on, like what's going on? This is not okay. Not to say that if they know the context that they're still going to be okay with it, but at least having the context of why it's happening, maybe they can be more understanding of what's going on. So it just goes back to what you were saying earlier, that it's probably harder even for the family to deal with this new person than the person themselves even. I don't want, if there's uh, people that are listening, it's very difficult for the person. I think there's just different, there's different types of, unfortunately, and not, I, I, one thing I've learned in my job is that kind of just like happiness comes and joy comes in many different types of flavors. So does pain and suffering. And but there's just different types of pain and different types of suffering and not that one's worse or better or just different. And certainly the experience can be very different. And there's different, there's areas in which for the family, it may be more painful for the person themselves. It may be harder. That's a better way to put it, that it's just, it's different. It's different. Can you speak at all to the experience or maybe the challenges for families after there is a brain injury, the stressors of navigating the medical system? Uh, yeah, that's tough. It's very tough. It's even tougher now where you know, people are not often uh, family members not allowed in the hospital, which I think is extremely important. And it impacts patient care when there's no one, when there's no one around. Not to say that there's anything wrong with, with the wonderful doctors and nurses. They do a tremendous job, but there needs to be I think a family member with a patient, especially one who can't advocate for themselves. So that's something that recently has become even more of an issue. It's a very difficult, it's a very difficult time. And often, I guess, and this, again, this is a more severe thing. There's often, I would say, a stage where it's more of like a kind of life or death type of crisis in the beginning. But once the, it's realized the person will most likely survive, then it moves on to a different stage. There's often ups and downs, just like there would be with anybody who's in, let's say, uh, critical care for a long time. It can be subsequent infections and subsequent issues that arise for anybody who's who's been sick for so long. So there's that stage, there's always this up and down. And then there's the rehab stage. And then it's out of the hospital into, the, into a rehab. I think uh, something we see a lot of is at every stage, there's an adjustment for the patient and for the family. Moving from ICU to a regular kind of hospital floor is an adjustment. ICU, there's constant care. There's so many um, doctors and nurses there moving from a hospital to rehab, from rehab to subacute, from subacute to home. Like every one of these kind of adjustments, I think, is something we try to prepare family for and help them with what to expect in those types of situations. So that's part of what the medical process is like. There's communication with medical staff, which is complicated. People want answers medical staff, if they're honest, usually don't have them. They don't know. Oftentimes when they tell you they don't know, they're being honest when people ask them about prognosis. And they can basically give you like a little bit of information, but the reality is that they don't know. Doctors are put in a very hard position. They're trying to explain these kind of complex prognostic indicators to family members. There's really just not an awesome way to 
to do it. To be able to give family members some clarity as to what's going on that they want is often not a lot of clarity. So doctors can be overly optimistic. They can be overly pessimistic. It's really tricky. That communication piece can be pretty complicated. So what might be one or two pieces of maybe advice for families on how to navigate the medical system? So, you know, whether it's trying to find the doctor or advocate for something or communicate things like that, what would be just, obviously we don't have enough time to do comprehensive strategies, but what would be like one or two things that maybe you would say to encourage, to advise a family that is trying to navigate this? I'll give you one easy one. I don't know if it's relevant to to most people, but, you know, pick your battles. You want to advocate for something for a patient, maybe don't raise hell because you want the patient to have a private room when the first day you get to the rehab and that's where you're alienating the entire staff for some reason you're you know what I mean like there's times I think in general people that are in the field doctors and and especially the nurses they're they're there because they care they're there because they want to help being combative and confrontational with them is often not helpful and certainly when you do decide to that you really need to push for something that you think will be in the best interest of the patient, make sure that it's worth it. Make sure that you have capital build up. You have good relationships with the staff. You have good relationships with the doctors and nurses, number one. And number two is that what you're advocating for, you really is necessary and is really important for the patient care. It's not a hotel where, oh, you need a private room and they don't like their roommate and stuff like that. I've seen people come into world-class rehabs and be focused on that for the first you know three days fighting because they want a private room. So picking your battles, creating a collaborative relationship with the staff who are there primarily to help are kind of some very easy to understand kind of type of advocacy. Not to say that sometimes you have to take a stand. You you do want to be a good advocate. You do want to uh, be firm. Oftentimes the staff is relying on the, the family to give them feedback. If you're there with the patient all the time, you might have some sense of what they might be doing and how they might be responding. That's fine. But yeah, I think maintaining that balance is a good idea. So to parlay that, what you just said, I think everything you just said is applicable to everybody listening, whether or not they know someone or ever, or have a family member who's had a traumatic brain injury. Because in essence, what you're saying is communicate appropriately. It's more about having a relationship with someone than making demands. If you work on having relationships, whether it's in business or whether it's with neighbors or colleagues, If you have a good relationship, you're in a much, much better position. And then, like you said, picking your battles is being strategic in not making everything the biggest deal. It might be important to you, but you might be burning your bridge if you make it about the room. You only have so many shots in the cannon. You want to save those shots for the ones that are really important. If you need to go to that extreme of being very loud or very firm or whatever it is, you better make sure that it's about the thing that means the most to you. So that applies in so many different areas. You don't want to be the boy who cries wolf because no one's going to listen to you anymore. And then also the perspective taking. You know, Years ago, one of my part-time jobs was in a nursing home and being able to take the perspective of the staff which I agree with you, primarily they care. Primarily they want them to be well. But also a lot of these facilities, they might be severely understaffed. 
and they're being asked to do the job of three people, we don't know what their conditions they're under. We don't know what they're being paid. We don't know how difficult the other patients are being or the other families are being. And being able to try to just take the perspective that if they're not giving you an answer right now, it doesn't mean that they don't care. It could be that they do care. Maybe they don't know, or maybe they're being pulled in 18 different directions. So for you to then attack them for not being able to give you an answer, maybe is not fair. And also realizing that you're under a whole heck of a ton of stress and for me to be under stress and then take it out on the next person is just not fair. So I think all that stuff you said is very applicable. So I don't want to make this all about doom and gloom and, and negative. And maybe I should have done this earlier. And I, there's a couple more things I want to you know touch on before we wrap this up. There's got to be, from your experiences, a lot of really inspiring or heartwarming experiences or stories that you've heard. This is a lot of adversity and we respond. Families and people respond with tremendous resilience and strength and perseverance against odds that are really tough. I'm just curious if you have anything to share on that, on you know the positive side of people being able to be stronger than they think, families being able to be stronger, people coming together, any sort of either an anecdote or just a thoughts about the flip side of things, about people rising to the challenge. Listen, in my work, I see people at the worst, often the worst day or the worst time of their lives. It's amazing how different people react and people's genuine resilience. You see care. You see what family really is. You see what uh, what love really is. I, I see raw emotion. There's a great line from Bialum where he talks about one of the benefits of being a therapist is that he says you get a backstage pass to life. You see everything. You see people on the street and, you know, you see your, your friend and, and, and your family and you kind of only get the front thing. You don't necessarily get to see what's going on behind the scenes. It's inspiring to see what people, when you see them behind the scenes, what they're able to do, what they're able to accomplish. People that recover far beyond. There is something at the end of the day, we used to run a support group for male stroke survivors. That's what it was. And I remember once going around the table, there were probably like 10 people there. And every one of them was living uh, a, you know, a meaningful, fulfilling life. And they were all, they were all supposed to not be alive for the most part. And at some point, like almost all of them, one of them is who had a stroke, remembers hearing the doctor tell his wife that he wasn't going to survive. Wow. One person had a, a minion in his room because they were ready for him to where they were ready for him to pass away. And for those who don't know, a minion is a uh, prayer quorum for religious Jews. It's a, it's a group of, of 10 men who come to pray and they might do that at the end of a person's life if they know that they're about to pass. So, uh, so you see, at the end of the day, people will often do so much better than was expected. The persistence, the dedication of wives and husbands, of mothers and fathers, and how that pays off. People owning it. I know someone who had a TBI and he only has limited use of one arm and he now has a, a gym company or a therapy company called, you know, one-handed therapy. Now that's always when the person, instead of trying to avoid or work around the problem, when they just own it and turn the turn it into something actually positive. That's what's what's often where you see the most progress as opposed to trying to deny the issue, but you just make the issue, you make the problem into the solution. So we, we do see lots of wonderful things. 
No one really recovers as much as everybody wants them to, rarely. But I hope that people listening actually get to learn from this. First of all, you just get a perspective on life a little bit. You get to see what we have when you see what people don't have. But again, all the things you just said, again, are very applicable to each and every one of us in our daily challenges, the importance of family and the importance of support and the resilience. I love the owning piece and my very insignificant comparison to to this. It's like, I'm going to lose my hair one day. And I promise you, and I've made this promise to myself, perhaps because I had a relative who had a really atrocious comb over, made my promise, just own it. The people who own it, you love it. You love being, they just own it. Yeah. Okay. I'm bold. Like, I'm not going to sit here and pretend besides the fact that it doesn't convince anybody at all, whether it's the comb over to pay. I know that's trivial point is that you're hundred percent right. Is that the more we try to like pretend that it's not there, the more it's there. So own it. Does it mean that owning it means that it feels good? I like it. I want it here, but owning it and then rolling with that. The other thing that I thought of while you were talking is, you know, the power of family and support. And I'm just remembering this now. So I don't remember the details. There's definitely has been research on, and maybe you know this, remember this from like grad school. They did research of people doing, I think it was MRIs or CAT scans. Some people had someone holding their hand from their family and some people didn't. And what lit up in the brain was different when they had that support there. And that's like a real life difference of you see what support does. So it's family support, it's love, it's that physical support. Knowing that support is there could be the difference between how fast a recovery goes, whether it's encouragement, sometimes support is really pushing them because you care for them and you don't let them not do something. And that could be tough. So yeah, all that's true. One last question here before we wrap up is to go beyond the person and go beyond the family. I think this would be meaningful if people listening would hear from you sort of a do's and don'ts of how the other people respond. So friends, maybe extended family. It almost reminds me of, you know, there's a ton of maybe dark jokes, but of people who are mourning the loss of a family member and people come to the mourner's house. And some people say the most idiotic things that you can possibly imagine. And there's like a do's and don'ts of maybe it's not appropriate to say this and this. You have the insight of working with them. This is something that would be helpful. And this is something that wouldn't be helpful. I know I've said this on the podcast a number of times, worth repeating. There's a very popular Brene Brown video on the difference between empathy and sympathy and very popular. Probably many of you have seen it. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. It's a three-minute video. One of the things that she mentions is she made up an adjective, a verb, I should say, of silver lining it that people do. So, well, you had a miscarriage. At least you have other children. Seriously, that doesn't help. (laughs) So we'll end off with that, I think, although I'm sure we can go on much longer, but we'll end off on that as what are some of the do's and don'ts for the other people that may interact with the family or the person themselves? 
So I think a lot of that same stuff probably applies here also. Silver lining it, silencing effect, those types of things where, you know, oh, well, you know, there's so much better, could have been worse, at least they're alive, blah, blah, et cetera. Like those types of things that are ways that people take their own discomfort from speaking to someone who's gone through something so difficult and they try to shut them down really so that they don't experience that discomfort. So I think a lot of the, the things that apply, like you said, silver lining it, silencing the other person, not letting them talk about what's been going on, I think apply here also. I think some of the things that people don't understand that I think families probably wish they did was number one, the, the length of this problem, how long it could be. I'll often tell people in ICU, like people are raising money and families coming together and people are doing, don't burn out everything here in the first month because this family is probably going to need your support for years. But I think people don't realize just because the person came home from rehab and just because they survived doesn't mean that this whole problem is over. Most of it is kind of this uh, perspective that they want to change where brain injury is, is not so much an in, Ill injury as it is a chronic illness. It's more similar to that because it lasts for so long. So understanding that people who, who are dealing with a brain injury are dealing with the ramifications and consequences of that for years to come and that they'll often still require support, understanding, even though we're like, oh, it was two years ago. Yeah, it was two years ago, but there's still a lot. You don't know what's going on in teachers. You don't know what's going on in the home of a kid whose parent had a traumatic brain injury. So these, the long lasting arc of it, I think also, and a lot of times people will say, oh, it's such a miracle. They recovered. They were so sick. Okay. But it's not necessarily over and it's not necessarily done. The brain injury, they call it the hidden injury. They look fine, but you don't necessarily know how their short-term memory is working or if they're having planning, organization, prioritization issues because of executive functioning problems. So understanding that also, the length of time and the fact that it's a hidden injury and you don't necessarily see all the consequences that are there and to keep that in mind when dealing with the family, you don't know what's going on. Right. In a way, those people who are well-intentioned saying, wow, it's amazing that they recovered in a way is brushing over that it ain't over, but they're still struggling. There's a fine line between being supportive and helping people out and turning them into a charity case. Because, and and I've heard this in uh, in other contexts too, of people want to be treated normal, whether or not they're able to do certain things. Do you find that this is true with TBIs and all the aftermath? Yes, people definitely want to be treated normal. Certainly the, the patient's. I would say, though, if I had to pick where the issue was, it would be in this situation. It's more that that people are forgotten and neglected, where a year, three years later, four years later, they can still be dealing with someone who's severely impaired. And it's more, it's not so much that they're getting, that no one's treating them normal and they're being treated like a charity cab, as much as that people have forgotten about them. Great. Okay, Alkharan, that was great. I know for people listening, I apologize for maybe being a little scatterbrained in this episode. There was just so many lanes to go down that I couldn't resist. And I hope it was uh, meaningful for people. A lot of good information. And feel free to find Alkharan online in New Jersey, New York. Thank you, Alkharan, for joining. Thank you so much for having me. It's always uh, good to get together. And, and talk. I appreciate you giving the platform so that hopefully we keep making these uh, dents in uh, people's understanding of this, which I think will ultimately, you know, lead to, to good things for uh, the community, the brain injury community that's uh, dealing with these issues.